I'm Don Winslow, and you're listening to Writer Types. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. This is Ace Atkin. This is Attica Long. This is Lawrence Block. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. That is an excellent question. This is Allison Galen, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery fiction podcast. I'm your host, Eric Beatner, and I am so thrilled to be joined by a special guest co-host, Alifair Burke. Alifair, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. I'm so happy to be here. Well, now you've been a guest on the show before, and you've answered my call when I've asked you for way too many favors over the years. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the balance sheets that hopefully you're keeping, I owe you a lot. So I'm waiting for you to cash in one day with, you know, picking you up at the airport or uh, maybe at this point you've you've moved on. You've got enough. I need to like help you hide a body or something. You know, I feel like I get my own reality television show at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could go pitch that. Yeah, let's let's do it. <laughs> well, now I'm, I'm catching you in uh, in Professor Burke mode because you're in the middle of the, the semester teaching law school. When you're in the middle of, of a semester, do you carve out time to write between your professor duties or, or is it something that you have to wait until the semester's over? No, I, um, I, I kind of balance it throughout. So my teaching days are kind of all Professor Burke days. And then when I'm not teaching, I try to get in as much writing as I can. I, I, honestly, I think it makes me a more productive writer because I'm just much more aware of like, OK, I've got a day that's free, like I've got to make good use of it. I'm actually towards the end of the semester, which is the bane of my existence, because that's when the students realize that there's going to be a final exam. (laughs) (laughs) Their anxiety levels are very high, and it's kind of hard not to let that soak in. Do you like the school environment? Like when you were in school, were you into it and and eager to get back as as a professor? Oh, if there was a permanent job as a law student, I would just do that. I've I'm very unusual in that regard. I remember loving law school and not necessarily wanting to be a lawyer. I just want to sit around and talk about it and study it. When, uh, you, I know you use a lot of like pop culture references, like movies and books as examples in your teachings of sort of, you know, seeing the law in practice, right? Uh, yeah, it's getting harder to do that, I guess, as I get older, because, you know, I used to be the cool professor who would bring in, you know, episodes of The Wire, The Shield, or I can teach most of Crim Pro from the uh, junkyard scene and Breaking Bad, but they don't watch those shows. Like they don't watch TV at all, really. They they everything is YouTube and um, TikTok and things. Like they don't actually watch content, which probably doesn't bode well for the future of intellectual property. <laughs> well, do you have a a favorite courtroom scene in, in a movie that you you love? I like um, it's originally from a book, A Time to Kill, the closing argument, and A Time to Kill. You know, what if the defendants were African American and the little girl was white? Like it's it's very powerful, and I peop, uh, law professors actually do use that sometimes in teaching trial skills and teaching equality in the criminal justice system. So I like that a lot on the serious side, but on the the funny side, my favorite is um, my cousin Vinny. <laughs> I must have seen that movie thirty times. <laughs> well, those are both good. Of, of course, the correct answer is uh, Wallace Shawn in the bedroom window. Oh, that uh, is the best that, courtroom scene. Yeah, that is good too. <laughs> now, I was curious, and uh, I searched on the Google there, and it's, I searched for notable people named Alifair. And did you know that you are the first name that comes up? I didn't, but that seems that would seem likely because I think there's really like only three of us. <laughs> there's not <laughs> many. Well, the, the, the other one that, that comes up to sort of the second on the list is uh, someone named Alifair McCoy uh, from the famous yeah. Hatfield and McCoys, uh, and they were shot to yeah. death in the New Year's Eve massacre in 1888. Yeah, yep. so. those are the famous Alifairs. No, it's um, it's a family name. It was my great grandmother's name. But, uh, you know, my dad uses that name in his novels for Dave Robichaud's daughter is named Alifair. And she's been on the page now, I think, since she was a little girl. And now she's like, I don't know exactly how old she got. She must be. She's getting up there. <laughs> she's a grown woman. Um, but a lot of I think two of my readers have named their babies Alifair. But then I think a lot of his readers have named like their pets Alifair. There's like there's cats <laughs> and there's an alpaca named Alifair, which always makes me laugh. Uh, but there are some babies now, so maybe maybe there'll be a resurgence of Alifair as one of these days. 
All right, well, let's talk to our first guest. We have Steph Cha, the author of three novels in her Juniper Song series, and now her new novel, Your House Will Pay, is getting all the praise and accolades a novel could ever hope for. Uh, have you read this one yet, Alfer? Yeah, no, I knew it was going to be a huge book for her, and um, I I was lucky. I met Steph years ago uh, through Ivy Pakoda. Uh-huh. And she agreed uh, to interview the two of us when we had books out in L.A. And um, it, I think it was the smallest book event I've ever had. I, I'm not lying. The only people who showed up were um, a woman showed up who anything we said, she turned it into a launching point to talk about how there weren't enough traffic lights on the street outside because it was so dangerous. <laughs> what? <laughs> and my high school boyfriend. Oh, wow. <laughs> so <laughs> that was my first meeting of Steph. And I, I could tell she was looking at me and Ivy like, so this is a great writing event you guys have pulled me <laughs> into. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Steph Chaw, welcome to Writer Types. Thank you for joining us. Uh, your new novel, Your House Will Pay, comes after a trio of your Juniper Song novels, which were you know, more traditional PI mysteries, but this one is very different. Do you think this was a book that could have been written without that foundation that came before? No, I actually think that um, I needed to write um, three straight mysteries. I don't know. I feel like each of my books has come out of the books that I've done before. I think I needed to get to know the crime genre and to get steeped in it to understand, you know, just the way it worked and the way that I think about crime and literature. But it's not necessarily squarely in the crime or mystery genre. I mean, was that a little bit of a conscious effort to try to break away from being too, you know, shelved in one genre? You want to go more literary or... I think I was trying to go with what this book demanded. You know, I, I decided pretty early on that I wanted it to be from the points of view of these two characters who are deeply affected by a couple of crimes. And just because of who they are, which is, you know, they're not PIs, they're not cops, they're just kind of people who are who are impacted by violence. I knew that it wouldn't work as a PI novel or um, a straight mystery. It's kind of a crime novel in, in inverse in that, you know, my other books, I have somebody going around solving these crimes and she does it by talking to people, the people who are directly impacted by the crimes that she's investigating. You know, whereas in this book, I have a cop character, I have a journalist character, you know, kind of in the more traditional mold of like somebody who could carry a novel like this. And Grace and Sean, who are my protagonists, are the side characters, um, the people that the uh, journalist or the cop might interview for like a chapter, you know, they would provide some color, they would provide their story, and then the investigator would move on. I wanted to linger in these characters' lives and really think about what it meant for them to have violence um, disrupt their lives. Steph, I think if I'm doing the math right, I think that time um, you were kind enough to host me and Ivy Pakoda about our books that came out in what I think was 2016 in LA. Mm -hmm. I think this might now be the book that you were thinking about or working on. I also know from the things you've um, talked about since the book's been out that you really put a lot of yourself um, into it and that it might have taken you longer to write. And um, what was it that you think took you a little longer because as somebody who's getting slower and slower I'm interested in the reasons why I want you to tell me like the payoff is there do you think it was was it the personal aspects of it or was it cracking the story when you came to LA if that was 2016 I'd been working on this book for probably around a year and a half already and you know there wasn't really an end in sight at that point I will say when I first started writing this book, I was very optimistic and I was like, oh, maybe I'll challenge myself to like have this published in 2017 around the 25th anniversary of the LA uprising. Like that would be a cool tie in. And it came out in October 2019. Like I was not even close. It took me four and a half years altogether. I stopped. I wasn't done editing until this May. The first thing was that because it's not a traditional mystery novel, I didn't have like the, the genre conventions to work with. Uh, and a mystery novel comes with a certain 
set of bones. Um, and I'd been using those in my Juniper Song books, and I couldn't rely on them for this book. Um, the other big piece was that Sean's character and his family, they're Black Americans living in Palmdale. That's not something that I had personal access to, whereas like the Korean American family living in the Valley, like I knew how to write them. Being in that community for so long, I didn't feel apprehensive about it. But um, I would say that a lot of the work in getting Sean and his family on the page, you know, I remember my husband read an early draft of the first 30,000 words and he said, Grace seems like somebody you know, and Sean seems like somebody you read about. And so- Oh, that's a good note. It was a great note. I want to circle back to what um, you had said that uh, Grace's family dynamics came more organically for you because you were kind of based, you were basing it on what you've lived and what you've known. And without admitting that anything I've ever written is about my own family, <laughs> I know that when when I'm really in the flow, it's it's writing something that is based on the dynamics of some relationship I've you know personally experienced. But then there always becomes the moment where they those people read it and you're kind of like, Oh, do they recognize that? <laughs> um, how has your family responded to the book? My only my dad has read it. And he, uh, he is a little bit like the Korean dad in this book. In that like, yeah. he's not very uh, expressive. So <laughs> I don't really know how he feels about the book. He hasn't, he hasn't said anything <laughs> about the father. Uh, my mom hasn't read it yet. I'm actually not that worried about her reaction to it. She knew from the beginning that I was going to write a book about Sinjadu, so I don't think she's going to read that much into it. Honestly, the stuff that I pulled from my mom to put into this character was more the good stuff. It was the stuff I used to make her seem like a good mother. Right. And so I don't think uh, that's going to be a big problem, but we'll see. Well, the tensions between Korean Americans and African Americans have, I feel like it's uh, something that is kind of common knowledge, but it's very seldom uh, represented in entertainment. I mean, I can think of the, you know, there's a little bit in Spike Lee's yeah. Do the Right Thing, and that's, there's not a ton of representation, but, you know, that took place in Brooklyn. Is, is the experience in this book seems like a very LA story? Is, are, are those tensions that you write about a very L.A. experience? You know, I feel like they're very early 90s L.A. Um, these days, I think these dynamics show up more in other cities, uh, actually. You know, I was actually recently kind of reading through a Twitter thread about black beauty shops because somebody, uh, a black woman posted pictures of her beauty supply store that she's about to open and she said something along the lines of like you know I'm about to open this shop like stop shopping at those Asian shops and various people called her racist and an Asian guy like retweeted her and said like you didn't have to include the Asian part and so both of these threads were retweeted like thousands and thousands of times so there were all these comments it, the comments kind of ran the gamut but it was a lot of black people and a lot of Korean people talking about why it's okay to say this or why it's not okay to say this. You know, because mm. Koreans have um, have kind of cornered the market on black beauty supplies. So actually a lot of the a lot of the hair products, um, like a lot of the weaves um, and extensions that black women use, they have to get them from Koreans because these stores are Korean owned. And the tension in those threads, like this was like last week are very similar to the ones that I was reading about as I was doing research for this book. So th things haven't changed as much oh, as we Oh no, and not at all. And I think, but but these, these stories are not really LA stories. So I think like in places like Baltimore, um, you know, I, I, I remember after, um, after Freddie Gray died, um, there was some writing in Baltimore and Korean businesses were targeted there too. But LA actually, has a lot fewer black people now than it did in the early 90s. The neighborhoods that um, where like Korean businesses dominated black neighborhoods, like that's less of an LA thing now. And it has kind of shifted to other cities because there's been a massive exodus of black people from Los Angeles um, over the last 20, 25 years. And a lot of the people who left, uh, who left central LA now live in um, these exurbs 
like Palmdale, like Lancaster, you know, places like where Sean and his family live. But in other American cities, this dynamic is very much alive. To um, shift wildly, I wanted to hear about your book tour because I've been following you online and I see lots and lots and lots of stops. So um, any highlights from your travels <laughs> to share? It's been exhausting. <laughs> I was telling Eric that the book event we did in LA together that the like three people showed up, two I think, um, and one was my ex-boyfriend from high school. So hopefully that did not happen <laughs> to you. I've definitely <laughs> had some like, some like book, book events with low attendance. I don't know. This is like something that is not obvious to people who are not authors but like you know people who don't know you like unless you're unless you're actually michael Connolly, are not gonna like show up for your book events (laughs) (laughs) but you did an event with him right i saw each crowd that was that was really good um and that was actually not like officially you know that was me interviewing michael but um like i sold more books at that event than i did at some of my my like own bookstore events because he's really generous and like he's really been like championing this book in a way that has been utterly surprising to me (laughs) it's very very nice um he he loves that book he's he's been telling everybody how much he loves that book it's it's wonderful so that was that was a real highlight yeah so i did an event with him and that was awesome and also walter mosley who's an idol of mine um that that was that was really fun Portland Book Festival was um, pretty spectacular. I, I like the book festivals. Like Texas Book Festival was, oh, I did this event with Attica Locke um, in the Texas State Capitol. Um, and she was being presented with the Texas Writer of the Year Award. And it was right. it was pretty amazing because she, she gave a speech about how like, you know, she's very aware that like her her ancestors were not allowed to read. And she was winning a literary award inside the house chambers of the Texas State Capitol. So that was pretty cool. Well, Steph, uh, get prepared for the writer types bump in sales, uh, our our patented (laughs) spike in your Amazon ranking. (laughs) (laughs) And one thing I will say about my book tour, I'm, I'm pregnant. I'm like 16 weeks pregnant. Wait, oh, congratulations. What? So I haven't been drinking at all. <laughs> thought you sounded different. <laughs> but I've still been having fun, but this is my first sober book tour. <laughs> so, Alifair, uh, have you ever been to Australia? I haven't, but it's supposed to be so lovely. Are you going? I wish. I recently had the good fortune to have four Australian authors come read at Noir at the Bar, which I host here in L.A. Uh-huh. They were a, this wonderfully eclectic group of authors and each one more charming than the other. It was it was quite amazing. I was totally smitten and was so glad that I got to be a part of this nationwide tour that they were on. And get this, they got a grant from the Australian government to do it. Oh, God, our government is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Things we will not be getting, number 317,000. So who were they? I talked to uh, Emma Viskich. She's got a fabulous uh, series, a mystery series about uh, a protagonist who is profoundly deaf, which makes for a really, really interesting main character. Uh, Sulari Gentil, who writes uh, a period set uh, series set in Australia. And then uh, Jock Sarong, who uh, I think is on his fourth novel, just came out. Uh, and then an author named Robert Gott, who uh, has two different series, also set in the 1940s Australia. Mm-hmm. I got a few minutes to ask questions to all four of these authors. So uh, let's check that out. I'm here at Noir at the Bar with Emma Viskich, all the way from Australia. Thank you so much for coming all this way. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Uh, you and your uh, other three cohorts have been in the States for two full weeks now, and you're not done yet. I mean, this is a whirlwind tour. Yeah, it's been amazing. And we started off in New York, ended up in uh, BouchCon in Dallas, went to Phoenix, drove from Phoenix on what we call the wrong side of the road to L.A. <laughs> <laughs> so we feel like we've, we've seen so much of the country already and yet have seen nothing of the country because it's so huge and so diverse. Well, you are here with the third of uh, your Caleb Zellick books. And uh, I know that when we first talked uh, on the show, you had just published the first one and I think maybe the second one was written but not out yet. So now three books in, 
has Caleb's story been a surprise to you? Is it taking you places you never thought it would go? It constantly takes me places I'm surprised. First of all, the character surprised me um, because he's profoundly deaf. I didn't set out to write a profoundly deaf character. No. No, no. It came as a complete surprise to me. Um, she, he partly came from a, a girl I went to school with who was profoundly deaf, partly inspired by that, um, but also mainly by my grandparents who are, are not deaf but uh, didn't speak English. They were Croatian immigrants. I did not speak Croatian. So that... Um, that idea of lack of communication and isolation has been there since I was born. So his, his character evolved from those things without being deliberate to begin with. So right from the start, I've been surprised every single step of the way with him and, and doing the research, learning sign language, learning, trying to learn how to lip read, all of these things, constant surprises every day of the week. Now, going to the lengths of actually learning Australian sign language, I mean, was that just, was that sort of your way to empathize with this character to be able to write him better? Yeah, I think so. I, I started learning not entirely sure if he was going to use sign language or not. The majority of people in Australia who are deaf don't. So I, I, I started off with a short course um, just, just to see what it was like. Five minutes into it, I knew he was going to have to sign. Uh, it, it shows a side of Caleb that is freer, that is relaxed, and also allow me to show that um, the people who love him use sign language with him. So once I realised that, I really, I dove deep. And yeah, it was partly because I wanted to know more about the language, but also, uh, yeah, it was about empathy and really understanding what the experience was going to be like. Now, there's a lot of conversations now in the writing community about inclusion and having underserved communities feeling like they're seeing themselves on the page. Have you had a lot of interaction with hearing impaired readers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there's, a, there's two sides to it. There's the one that you don't want to be taking airspace from people who are underrepresented. Uh, and so the important thing to do that as a writer is, first of all, make sure you know what you're talking about, which yeah. is talking to people, doing your research, more than research, really living it. Um, and then also making sure you're promoting, in my case, deaf writers, so making sure that you're leaving space for them. Um, and the other side is people who are um, just relieved to see themselves represented. So I do get a lot of emails and letters and, and things from people who are just, thank you, I haven't seen myself on the page before. So that side of it's been... Um, well, I was surprised, actually, but in incredibly relieved as well uh, that I seem to be getting it right. And they don't mind the murder. Uh, oh, people love a good murder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, as I said, you've been uh, in the States for, for a couple of weeks now. So in your time crisscrossing this nation, you've seen a great cross-section of what America has to offer. What has been maybe the most surprising thing? I think there's been two things. One is how like... Uh, how like my ideas of America it was it has been so I've grown up on American television and and movies and and uh, Australia has great television and film now but as a child there wasn't so much so that's our main way of seeing the world was through American television so there are definitely things that I go oh yeah that's exactly what I expected the unexpected has been how incredibly warm and inviting everyone has been not that I expected people not to be but it has been almost overwhelming how and we started off in New York and <laughs> and New Yorkers pride themselves as being rude and I got to tell you not a single person was rude to us it was almost disappointing that was so welcoming and so polite and so lovely that um, yeah it was it was a little surprising <laughs> So I'm here at Noir at the Bar with Jock Sarong, and uh, I had to notice that the three other authors on your little tour group here all happen to write series books. You write standalones. What is more appealing to you about the standalone novel? Well, I guess I start with the idea that either the story is gripping to me or it's not. So I... Uh, I, I look to individual stories and see if they light me up and whether I can find a way to build something out of them. It's funny you say that though because um, the, the book that I've got out currently, Preservation, I've written a sequel to it and that's now in the editing works and if that goes okay then I think there's a third book and, and there's a trilogy in it and um, I, I want to try and build something ongoing out of the characters that I've, that I've developed. 
Oh, now, this is not your first time writing about the sea. Uh, is this? Are, are you a frustrated sailor at heart? <laughs> um, I'm a lifetime surfer, and um, I think I'm about 12 years in now as a surf writer. And the thing about surf writing is that a lot of it is done within very, very tight confines that are um, they're full of jargon and they are written for a very integral audience. And, and I really wanted, ever since I've written about surfing, I've wanted to look more widely at the way we relate to the sea. And I love writing that talks about the human relationship with the sea. I think it's such a fascinating interaction. And particularly now in, in the fraught times that we're in with our environment, um, more and more we're wondering how we relate to the sea and what our role is, our, our custodianship over the oceans. Um, so I wanted to ex expand my surfing writing into a wider literature about the ocean. And you're here in California, have you had a chance to get out there and ride the waves here? I haven't yet managed to get to the Pacific Ocean. I'm still struggling my way in that direction. You're so close. I know. <laughs> but um, I've got a friend in Santa Cruz who promises he'll take me for a surf, and I'm really excited because if you're an Australian and you think and write about surfing and it's a part of your personal culture, then these Californian names like Malibu and Mavericks and The Wedge and Huntington and all of these places, um, you, you grow up on them and to actually be here and to see them in, in reality uh, is a hell of a treat. <laughs> now, you've gone all across the nation, you've seen both coasts, you've seen the middle of the country. In your time here, has there been a favorite moment, the thing that you're going to take away and, and be thinking about for years and years after this? Oh, it's, it's so hard because the experiences have been so enormously diverse and um, I, I know this is trite to a lot of people, but um, you get here and you realize there's a whole lot of Americas. There's not an America. Right. Um, a moment that I think literally took the words from me and, and I had nothing <laughs> to offer was seeing the Grand Canyon, just just the sheer enormity of it. Yeah. It's um, our biggest hole in the ground. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a mountain range in inverse. Yeah. And that took a lot of processing mentally, I think. That was an extraordinary moment. Well, I, I'm glad that you guys have enjoyed your time, and I, I know you've, you're not done yet. You're going up the West Coast, uh, so safe travels on the rest of your trip. Yeah, thanks, Eric. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity, and we're having a ball. And tonight looks great, by the way. Looks great. Well, we'll uh, talk to me after. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you again. <laughs> I'm here at Noir at the Bar with Sulari Gentile, and uh, you are a part of this crime writers on the run from Australia, but uh, you guys seem to have a pretty good thing going down there. Is there as much of a crime writing community in Australia, or do you guys need to all get out of town to, in order to feel like you're part of a scene? Oh, look, the, the crime writing scene in Australia is very strong, it's vibrant, it's very, very collegiate. Uh, but we are a small country in terms of population. There's only 26 million of us, which is the population of Texas. Yeah. And so uh, in terms of wanting to make the writing life sustainable, we need access to the bigger markets and you're the biggest. <laughs> now you took a break recently from uh, your popular Roland Sinclair series to write a, a sort of a meta standalone book in Crossing the Lines. I mean, was that something that you sort of felt like you needed to kind of hit the reset button uh, after doing eight books in this series, or is that was it something that you were dying to write and it just it took over and said, no, no, I'm I'm next in line. Uh, look, it was all of those things. I don't think I could have written Crossing the Lines if I hadn't written Roland first. So the the conceit of Crossing the Lines is, uh, it, it, well, it's a story about. A writer writing another writer and so you're never actually sure who's the writer and who's the the protagonist and it's generally about a writer's relationship with their protagonist and that came about uh, from having written the same protagonist over a series of several books and right. with each book we were becoming closer you know, with each book we were coming to know each other better and sometimes you know when you when you write a character that people love you have to play very close to the line between imagination and delusion and i and that book was about the question of what would happen if you cross that line 
Now, the Roland books uh, take place in the 1930s. Is that an era that you were always fascinated with? Uh, no, uh, not until I started <laughs> writing that series. I was, uh, I was, my, my husband is an historian and that's his particular area of expertise. Okay. So, of course, I completely ignored the era until I needed to write a book. And uh, at the time, I was looking for a way to bring him into my head so I wouldn't have to come out of it as often. (laughs) When it's easy research, you just shout across the living room. Exactly. It means that I can uh, expend my energies on the bit that I like the most, which is the making stuff up part. Now, in every picture that I've seen uh, of your journey across America, you have just a wide, brilliant smile like you're enjoying every minute of it. Has it really been just nonstop fun and games? It has. It's been amazing. And it's it's an experience. So even when things... And look, we, we've had a charmed uh, ride. Things haven't been difficult. Uh, but anything that's even a little bit challenging, it's all part of the experience. And I'm very aware that there's not many people who, who get to travel a, a new country with colleagues. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not just about the fact that we're visiting America and we're, we're seeing New York and Dallas and Phoenix and, and things that we've grown up with and, uh, and have you know, seen through the lens of movies and books all our lives but that I'm traveling with writers. So the downtime is conversations about plots and arcs and writing and, and what we do. So it's a complete immersion in that whole crime fiction world, which I am very aware is something, um, is a great privilege to have. And, and so, yeah, I can't, I can't help being absolutely delighted with it. Uh, most people would be impressed that the four of you have stuck together for this long and no one's killed each other. Well, look, there's still a week to go. <laughs> there's a lot of places where we can get rid of bodies. <laughs> all right, so I'm here with Robert Gott all the way from Australia here at Noir at the Bar. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been a long trip uh, for you guys to come out and just do a five-minute reading. Well, we consider that a privilege and an honor. Now, you have two different series, both set in the 1940s. Yes. Uh, so obviously you have a fascination with that era, as do I. I mean, what about that time period made it so fascinating for you? Well, it, it, is, it is essentially because I'm a lazy researcher. And, I, and when I wanted to write a crime novel, I didn't want to do a contemporary one because people, they know stuff and I don't know stuff. I don't know anything about forensics and I didn't, I'm too lazy to learn. But the 1940s is a period I've always been interested in, and uh, the research is fascinating. And Australia in the 1940s was a fascinating place. Uh, is, is it markedly different than the US in that time period? Oh, I would, I would think so, because Australia was at the bottom of the world. And Australia, the, the world didn't really uh, notice Australia until World War II, I don't think. And that was because the, Amer- the Americans arrived in force. There were more than a million American soldiers in Australia in the 1940s because of the Pacific War and the, right. the, uh, uh, the, the conflict there. Uh, but the, re- the reason I was interested in the 40s was simply because of uh, a story. I grew up in a small town in uh, Queensland and in, in that small town in 1942, a young girl went missing. This is way before my time, I should hasten to add. <laughs> uh, a young girl went missing and three weeks after she went missing, she was found basically dissolving in the town's water supply, oh, wow. which meant that everyone in Maribara, including my parents, were drinking her and brushing their teeth with her and washing their clothes with her and washing their hair with her. Oh, and I thought that was fabulous. So that was the starting point for my first novel because my parents were cannibals. <laughs> and I, I absolutely loved that idea. And uh, so I thought, okay, that's a good starting point. And the 1940s is a, a really great era to research. And in Australia, certainly, Crime fiction set in the 1940s is a very underwritten era. Now, you're also the author of the Holiday Murders series. Now, are are the holidays really murder, and is it all about all the family that were forced to be there? (laughs) No. After the fourth uh, comic novel, my publisher said, I think you may have entertained us sufficiently. And so he asked for a much darker series. But again, because I I am very much internally calibrated to dilettantism, I thought, okay, I'll give you a dark series, but I'm not moving from the 1940s because I've done the research. 
Ah, well, there you go. You can double <laughs> so, dip on your own research. Exactly. So this series, and at writers' festivals, I can say things like, "Oh, uh, I write a comic world, and I write a dark world, and they're at the sa- they walk down the same streets, but they can never meet." But really, it's just laziness. And <laughs> so the, the Holiday Murders and the three novels uh, consequent to that and the fourth one, which we publish next year, they're very dark, they're a bit violent, they're rather unpleasant, but that's what I call entertainment. <laughs> and I'm still looking for the ugly American. We've been here for three weeks, haven't met one. Well, there's always tonight. <laughs> and now I've met you. So maybe my goal has been reached. <laughs> Well, our next guest is Kate White, who is back with the latest in her Bailey Wiggins series with a book titled Such a Perfect Wife. Now, Alifair, have you ever had moments where you really nailed it and you thought to yourself, damn, I am the perfect wife? Uh, (laughs) When do I not think that? I I wake up to my (laughs) husband every day. No, it's one of those, you know, people either have tremendous confidence in everything they do or they are convinced that they are bad at everything they do. And I am definitely in the latter camp. (laughs) (laughs) Well, eight is an impressive number in a series. Uh, you you haven't gotten that high in uh, any of your continuing series yet, have yeah, you? Thanks for pointing that out. No, no, I cheat <laughs> on my series too much. Um, Kate is a much more faithful person with Bailey. So I don't know how you feel about it, but a really good series, like you really do feel like, oh, a friend's coming to visit. So every time I see a Bailey book, I love it. So I'm glad um, we're going to have a chance to talk to her. Excellent. Well, let's talk to Kate White. Kate White, thank you for joining us uh, on Writer Types. And uh, we're excited because Bailey Wiggins is back in Such a Perfect Wife. I I should say for the record, I'm required legally to say that I have a perfect wife. So (laughs) I just want to put that out there. Remember that time I thought your sister was your wife and you were both really grossed out? (laughs) Everybody used to think that. I I go uh, almost every year uh, to Baushakan with my sister and she never changed her name uh, to her husband's. So I would walk around and and introduce a a lovely woman with my same last name. And I think it was about five or six years that 90% of the people thought we were married. (laughs) My poor husband, he... I have a fabulous husband who I adore, and uh, but he's had to have titles like The Wrong Man and then <laughs> talking about such a perfect wife. So I think he feels a little bit perhaps like maybe I'm, I'm saying something about him, but I'm not. <laughs> if, if, when you revealed that title, did he sort of look at you with the side eye and say, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The perfect wife. So I think he would say... Um, a pretty good wife, at least. <laughs> well, this book centers on a missing woman. And when Bailey digs into it, of course, secrets are revealed. Uh, do you think is part of the reason why there are, it seems to be no end to mystery plots is that we all carry secrets? Yeah, and there's, and there's such interesting variations, too, because even if you look at the cheating husband or the embezzling co-worker, the, the variations are endless, and that's what makes it so much fun. What actually started me thinking about a wife who disappears when she's jogging was that story out in California about the, that beautiful blonde woman who all of a sudden vanished. And, of course, you're thinking the husband because literally it's so often the husband. I mean, just Al Fair, I'm sure, knows from her time as a prosecutor, the husband's almost always the person responsible for the wife's a disappearance or murder. And uh, yet in this case, she showed back up a month later claiming to have been kidnapped by two Hispanic people. And there was some, in the beginning, a sense of like, whoa, uh, is this all made up? And there's, it's never really been solved, though the police- I'm obsessed with that case. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that's the kind of variation, just when you think you're you're looking at a wife with- uh, that's been killed by her husband. And so that that's, that's just got me thinking and playing with that concept. Yeah. Uh, do you think that maybe uh, all of us are not keeping our own secrets buried as deep as uh, we think we are? And they're, they're more easily discovered than, than we might imagine? I think, I don't know how you guys feel, but it seems to me these days with people having 
such short attention spans and being so engaged in their phones and so many other things, I don't think they're necessarily paying attention to one another enough to to guess at any secrets. We're not paying attention enough these days maybe to notice those tells. Wow. <laughs> it's really depressing. Yeah. Perfect time to commit some crimes. Uh, Kate, as one of your fans, uh, I'll admit that I love your standalone books and I think you wrote five while you were away from Bailey. And I kind of thought maybe I was never going to see Bailey again, which made me sad. So I was happy that um, you're back to her. Did you always have intentions to go back to the series? Initially, I started just wanting to write a series. And I know that that's something that was probably true for you too, Alifair. And Yeah, I think so. And then all of a sudden, your, your publisher was saying, why don't you try a standalone? And you realize because that was a growing market. And I'd love to keep alternating because I think... As you guys know, when you switch gears at all, it, it energizes you for the for the to go back to something different. Maybe the inspiration uh, that that strikes you to say, "Oh, it's time for another Bailey." You, you have to balance that against what you think your readers are are wanting. Yeah, and I think even though it sounds crass, you do have to pay attention to the marketplace these days and be aware that there are certain things that have changed. I guess Gone Girl, right? That changed it all. all right. <laughs> I can still remember because I was running Cosmo then and I had this fabulous young woman who worked for me named Jessica Knoll who has written them. <laughs> she went on. I really tried to encourage her fiction because she was just such a talented writer and I gave her some fiction projects at Cosmo. And so we, we talked a lot about fiction because I always used to say to her, Boy, Jessica, you could write something so great. That bitch wrote a book that sold a million copies. <laughs> oh, but um, I had no idea that connection. Yeah, I, I love her so much. And she nicely acknowledged me in her book. But I remember her coming in one day because she knew that I loved reading thrillers uh, as a mystery writer. And she goes, okay, I am halfway through this book. You are going to love Gone Girl. I'm like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, get me a copy, would you? Little did I know it was going to change so much. I read that you keep a very spare and uncluttered desk, which uh, frankly is the opposite of what my desk looks like right now. Why is that important to you to, to have a space like that when you write? Well, obviously, Eric, you don't suffer from a problem with visual noise. Right? I, no, my my office is is very noisy. <laughs> I I can be messy, but when I'm writing, I have to have just no visual noise because it just gets in my way. I'll start you know, kind of puttering with whatever is available, even if it's a box of tissues. I'll find a way to engage with it instead of writing. Um, I, just for the record, Kate, I don't believe you that you can be messy. <laughs> I've known you for several years and I've seen, I've ridden on an airplane with you at eight in the morning and I have seen no indication <laughs> that there's anything messy about you. Um, I, I wanted to circle back um, and talk to you about your time as uh, the editor-in-chief at Cosmopolitan Magazine. You were also at Working Women at McCall's at Red Book. You had this long um, and successful career um, in magazines. What did you... Um, I guess, did you learn anything about people uh, while you were working there that you bring to your fiction, or do you see them as kind of two completely different careers you've had? I had such a weird brand, you know, being editor of Cosmo and writing murder mysteries. They don't seem very connected, and they're not. But I do feel that the Cosmo years helped me in some areas, and probably one of the most interesting one areas was the dynamics men and women and just how they interact and probably the big thing that I learned that I sometimes work into my books is that I think women sometimes think they can understand how guys think if they just try hard enough to do it or maybe serve him enough white wine he'll he'll, <laughs> he'll become more like you but I came away from Cosmo feeling men and women really think very differently. They think about sex very differently. And a lot of misunderstandings come because they, they just don't think alike. 
But it's uh, it's it's fascinating. And the the other thing that was interesting that maybe goes to mystery is that we used to interview a lot this woman named Helen Fisher, who was this fabulous anthropologist who studied romantic connection. And she said that really, ultimately, we are drawn to mystery, that from our early days, that was a way to protect us from mating within our group too much. And so we found anything that was on the outside, anything that was unfamiliar seeming and mysterious to be tantalizing and interesting. If you can create that mystery in your relationship a little bit, that really helps the attraction level stay high. And I think that search for mystery, it's in all of us in so many ways. It's why we, part of why we love mysteries and thrillers and love to read them. And so I think hearing her talk a lot about the need for mystery was was influential for me. Kate, I know that you, like so many writers, were you were first drawn to mysteries uh, as a young girl through the Nancy Drew books. And I'm curious to know if, uh, since you've been writing your own mysteries, have you ever gone back and revisited any of those books? Oh, yeah. I've gone back and reread some Nancy Drew books. In fact, there was a cute story that showed up online and somebody went back and took the 56 original Nancy Drew books and ranked them from 56 to one in terms of how good they were. And boy, was that fun to read. It brought back so many memories, you know, the mystery of Larkspur Lane and in the old clock. But one of the things that I found helpful when I first started reading, writing mysteries from rereading Nancy was her chapter endings. She always ended her chapters uh, with a bang, like, you know, the boat came barreling towards them and, you know, George yells, Nancy, look out, and then turn turn the page to the next chapter. So I found that helpful to make me understand that you have to be thinking about your chapter ending as you start writing that chapter so that everything goes towards that page turner of an of an ending. But at the same time, I, I went back and looked at a few Nancy's just this week. It's almost, Eric, as if you read my mind. I looked at a few and boy, they're not well written. They're really oh, no. <laughs> I don't want to know that. Yeah. Uh, but I guess for young women, when I was growing up, there was so little to read that you, you would take anything you, you could get your hands on that was geared to females. Okay, I know that you recently moved across town after 25 years in the same home. Uh, were you able to stick to a writing schedule during all of that chaos of the big move? Well, it's like you looked into my my soul with that one, Al Fair. No, I thought I would because my 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 little home office, I had arranged for someone to build bookshelves and do a built-in desk. Back to your point, Eric, about wanting it spare. I like this big flat desk area rather than just a standalone desk. And all of a sudden they tell me when I call them up and give them my credit card, oh, by the way, we're on vacation for the summer. So though we got the rest of the apartment set up, my office wasn't set up. And I tried to work on a little table in the living room. And I thought I was doing okay, but I got so far behind on the next book. And now I'm really Oh, no, I didn't mean to traumatize <laughs> you. Yeah. I've been forced to hold a blowtorch to my butt the last couple of weeks just to get back on schedule. Is, <laughs> is being in a, I know you're in a very different neighborhood than you were in. Does that affect kind of where your mind lives? I always come up with stories when I'm walking around the neighborhood and I always wonder if I change the neighborhood, will the stories change? Well, Sort of, because one thing that I used to do in my old neighborhood, there was uh, one of those cafes, Le Pen, uh, Quotidian, and I used to go there sometimes with my notebook and just lose myself. And there was something about being away from the office and being in this pretty cafe that would really help. And I haven't found the comparable place in the neighborhood, and I'm really feeling the loss of that right now because I'm okay writing at my desk, but it's that thinking part. I've, I've got to find a cafe someplace to go and do it. I've kind of ruined my productivity. The 
my little hang that um, I used to always take the little corner seat at the bar at this little pizza pasta place near me, um, have my lunch, but then, you know, sit there for a few hours and work and there's no Wi-Fi in there, which is great. Um, but I was kind of the curmudgeon who didn't hang around um, any of the neighborhood bar flies who kind of sit there and hang out and just slowly and surely, because it has been, you know, 15 years now I've been doing that. I let my guard down and now I'm like, Norm, if I walk in, like, I can't work. (laughs) Cheers. And, you know, if I, if I'm like, I'm going to work. And of course, you know, the next thing I know I'm doing the crossword puzzle with one of the regulars. It's like, (laughs) so now it's not my workplace anymore, but it's, it's fun. You think you'll find another than Alifair to make up for this one, the loss, because yeah, you're going to need. So when you find your new, um, place kate you'll have to go in with a fight face so that you don't become friends with anybody (laughs) Uh, that happened to me in my cosmo days because i used to go to a bar at lunchtime just to do cosmo daydreaming and i made that same mistake one day of let you kind of chatting with the the maitre d you know the guy at the podium and then it was over Well, Alifair, thank you so much for co-hosting with me today. This has been a blast. It really is fun. Well, and thank you for all the times over the years when you've said yes to my crazy requests. I I owe you big time. I'm easy. (laughs) Yeah. I wish I was better positioned to actually do you a favor that would would be meaningful. (laughs) Your friendship is the gift. Oh, isn't that special? (laughs) You better be careful. You need to raise your standards. Or you're going to get a reputation as a soft touch in this, in this industry. Oh, I don't think that'll happen. <laughs> well, I have more guest hosts coming up that I've suckered into doing this. Please subscribe to the show, and we always appreciate a rating and for you to tell a friend about the show. You can follow us on Twitter, at WriterTypes. Alifair, it's been an absolute pleasure. Just let me know when I can drive you to the airport or a dog sit for you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'll take you up on the dog sitting thing. That's that's a, a big job in our house. <laughs> that I would do in a second. I, I, I love your dogs. Pro- your bo- I, I like your books, but I love your dogs. <laughs>